Hello and welcome to Paranormal Pendle, the podcast from the heart of the Ribble Valley in the northwest of England, famous for the Pendle Witch Trials of 1612. My name is Craig Bryant, author, investigator and collector of stories both weird and wonderful. Join me as we take a journey into the paranormal, UFO sightings, cryptozoology and big cats and all things unexplained. This is the Paranormal Pendle Podcast. Welcome to episode one of Paranormal Pendle, broadcasting to the Paranormal UK Radio Network at paukradio.com. I'm delighted that my first guest is renowned paranormal author, presenter and tour guide, Simon Entwistle. Simon, welcome. Uh, My pleasure, Craig. Could we start off by you telling the listener a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the paranormal? Well, my name is Simon Entwistle. I um, run my own business, a tourism business called Top Hat Tours. Uh, These tours consist of guided coach tours, guided walks, um, visits to schools, etc. But I also concentrate a lot on ghost walks, and I conduct 12 ghost walks in the north of England, Lancashire, Yorkshire and Cumbria. Um, My fascination in the subject really uh, all stems from my dad, uh, who um, had a very, very interesting ghostly experience way back in 1960, and I shall bring this to attention later on, Craig. So... You're an author, a presenter, and a tour guide. I was looking on, on YouTube and I found your Tales from the Grave series. The one that I was really interested in was Salmsbury Hall. And I'm just wondering, really, how did that series come about? And also, the Salmsbury Hall episode in particular. Well, um, the Tales from the Grave, um, Craig, that, that was my idea, really, because every single grave has a story behind it. Of course, they're human stories, aren't they? Mm. Um, yes. I, I not only cover, shall we say, ghostly characters, but heroes and villains. Um, I love um, visiting, um, shall I say, Victoria Cross winners in uh, Blackburn, Burnley, Nelson Cone, Preston, and telling their stories. Um, relating to Sandsby Hall, I'm a regular tour guide there and have been for 20 years. They have four different guides at Sarsby Hall. One is a heritage tour. One's actually a very humorous tour run by a, a lovely girl called Joanne, and she plays one of the Sarsby Hall witches. There's then David, who plays the part of King Henry VIII. And I tend to do the spooky stories, because when it comes to spooky stories, Sarsby Hall is a real hotbed of ghosts, murders, and mm. indeed mysteries. <laughs> and I, I, I never get tired of going there, Craig, to be honest. I never do. No, it is a it is a fantastic building. I was particularly interested in the the story of the White Lady, and also you mentioned in the video that there are a number of uh, priest holes um, in Salisbury Hall. That's right. The gentleman was called Nicholas Owen, That's and you know, Craig, in many many ways, this this man was quite a hero. Really, um, he was using slides. He was using springs. He was using screws before they'd even been invented. Uh, he was a very, very clever chap, really. Um, the Southwests, of course, were ardent Catholics, and they refused to accept any other religion apart from the Roman Catholic faith. Um, 1536, King Henry VIII, of course, outlawed the Roman Catholic Church, and the Southwests refused to accept any other religion. 
when the new wing was built, um, they employed Nicholas Owen. And he designed this incredible priest hole, uh, which was state-of-the-art. It was actually incorporated into the mantelpiece, the fireplace. And with just one little uh, click of a metallic rod, the whole front would come out and the priest would go in and they'd push the fireplace back into perfect, um, perfect shape and size, if you will. Mm. The army were always looking for Catholic priests. They were convinced that the South was, were having illegal Catholic masses. And every time they arrived there, they um, never found anything because of Owen's incredible priest hill. Um, the king heard about him and made him a, a very, very um, serious uh, character to be arrested, really. He was chased all over England and was captured in 1606 at a place called Hinlip Hall in Somerset. He was then sent to the Tower of London, as you quite rightly say, Craig, right. and we are told he could have left the same day if he just renounced his Catholic faith, but he wouldn't. And for those of you who've been to the Tower of London, you will see this gorgeous graffiti scratched into the alabaster plaster. And just beneath um, Sir Walter Raleigh is the name of Nicholas Owen, which is scratched into the wall there with this words, this day I shall be with my father. The poor lad was hung, drawn and quartered, and that must have been an exceptionally painful death, Craig. Absolutely. I didn't know about the graffiti. I found that really interesting. You mentioned that um, there was some graffiti that had been written by Anne Boleyn, scrolled yes. into the, oh, into yes. the wall. Um, it, it's, it's incredible. Uh, you were looking at medieval graffiti uh, in an area, if you excuse the pun, called the Bloody Tower. And uh, of course, the authorities uh, for many, many years have realised that this graffiti is so precious. They put perspex over every one of them. So you can look at them, but you can't yeah. touch them. Yeah. And looking at Anne Boleyn's handwriting, Craig, it was gorgeous. These beautiful italics, and she must have used presumably a nail or a nail file or a knife. But the writing is absolutely gorgeous. It really is. Yeah, no, that's that. of course, being hung, drawn and quartered, obviously, we won't go into it into too much detail because as you quite rightly say um it was a particularly grisly death but which other episodes do you do you sort of um do you recall enjoying doing um well um i'm a regular tour guide at um, salmsbury and townley hall okay. and i've also been very very fortunate to go to one of the loveliest halls in the ribble valley which is brusham hall uh, but they are absolutely jam-packed with stories, Craig. And mm. um, unlike yourself, I'm not a paranormal investigator, but I'm a collector of ghostly stories, really. And I find as a tour guide, these stories are so useful because you can keep an audience entertained. Uh, Townley Hall, just like Sardby Hall, full of stories. And shall I convey one to you right now? Oh, yes, please. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned the hung drawing and quartering. Uh, one story which um, I do find really intriguing about Townley Hall is the family. Of course, they were ardent Catholics as well. Um, way back in 1745, the young pretender, Bonnie Prince Charlie, arrived at a place called Eric Say in the Outer Hebrides. He was on a mission, and that mission was to put a Stuart on the throne of England, a Catholic king once again. He had huge support up in Scotland, of course, but also huge support in Lancashire and the Townley family. They were ardent Catholics. And Colonel Francis Townley, he'd been educated in France. Uh, he served in the French army because the British army would not allow Catholic officers. So therefore he served in the French army 
could speak fluent French, and of course so could um, the young pretender. And when he arrived uh, in Lancaster with this huge army, he was met by uh, Colonel Francis Towney from Towney Hall Burnley with his Manchester regiment, lads who were loyal to the Catholic cause, and they set off. Uh, they stopped in Derby for some strange reason. They could have continued. Uh, it could have been a fear of what lay ahead, or it could have been communication problems, but they stopped in Derby. In the meantime, City of London, everyone is taking their money at the banks. Uh, this process, this huge Scottish army arriving. Also, the French army are just waiting to invade. They just need the word. But they stopped in Derby, about turned, and made this long, long journey back up to the Scottish Highlands. When they got to the city of Carlisle, Bonnie Prince Charlie said to, the, to Colonel Francis Townley, could you and your Manchesters hold Carlisle whilst I make my escape? He held on to Carlisle Castle for three days, but the Duke of Cumberland's redcoats outnumbered them six to one, and they were overrun. He was captured, and he said, I wish to be treated as a prisoner of war. I'm a serving French officer. He was told by the Duke that you are a traitor to your country. He was sent to Newgate, uh, there put on trial, and he was found guilty of treason, hung, drawn and quartered. His head locked off and placed at a temple bar in uh, London. His wife Mary made the long journey from Burnley to collect, the, to collect the head and brought it back to Townley Hall where it was ceremonies put inside a wickerwork basket with a napkin on top of it and every Christmas brought out for a, to be... Um, to join, shall I say, the family at Christmas time. <laughs> the head was then placed inside um, the uh, Townley Hall Chapel behind one of the wooden panels. And in 1901, the last of the Townleys passed away. And the hall is now run by Burnley Borough Council and has been since that period of time. And one inquisitive um, council worker made his way inside the chapel, removed one of the wooden panels and found the Colonel's head with a large hole where the pike had gone through it, some matted hair in the skull, and the head, the head was then taken to St. Peter's Church in Burnley and interned. However, wow. when the head was taken from Townley Hall, strange things happened. Yeah. Townley Hall, of course, is not only a beautiful, beautiful building. Yeah. It's an art gallery. And there are some precious, precious things there. And uh, when I first started my tours there, I had a lot of help from Burnley police. And uh, one officer said that at one time, Simon, we sent two squad cars with eight officers. When the burglar alarms went off, right. it then went down to just one squad car, because each time we arrived, there was no burglar, there's no break-in, but the alarm bells were going off. It got down to uh, three officers, then two officers, then to just one officer. And the sergeant mentioned that he arrived there in 1987. Usual situation, alarm bells on, but all the doors locked. He unlocked the building with his set of keys, walked up to the long gallery with his torch and stopped. He heard footsteps behind him. He nervously turned round and saw the ghost of Colonel Francis Townley with his head under his arm. The sergeant shrieked. He'd seen some very unpleasant sights as a police officer, but not, nothing as paranormal as this. He dashed to the left, ran down the twisting staircase, got into his vehicle, got back to the police station where his colleagues laughed at him, apart from one man the desk sergeant, who said, look, I believe you. I've been a Bobby in Burnley for some 35 years, and I too have seen the ghost of Colonel Francis Townley. But um, I've got to say, gorgeous building again, Craig, and they also have these beautiful priest holes because they were also an ardent Catholic family. 
Yeah. Yeah, I've visited Townley Hall on uh, numerous occasions myself. You mentioned um, Bruce Hall Hall? Uh, Bruceham Hall. Yeah. Uh, it's in the Ribble Valley, um, in the forest of um, Boland. Uh, the family that own it is the Parker family. And um, I do tours there, uh, mainly around the, the Christmas period, actually. Uh, but uh, the tours I do are basically all associated with the items that you'll find inside the hall. And one item which I find absolutely fascinating, Craig, is part of a German Zeppelin, the L-31. Now, she was um, a stealth weapon of World War I, a terror weapon, really. And the L-31 was run by the, um, the Kriegsmarine, the German naval service, if you will. Um, Hauptmann Matte, he was the, uh, the captain on board. Uh, he would actually write to the New York Times and say, I can bomb London at will. And he did do. Um, the anti-aircraft guns couldn't get up to that height. And he could bomb London at will, which he did do, causing millions and millions of pounds worth of damage. Now, the British are rather good at working out problems. And they brought out a brand new aircraft called the BE-25, uh, Bristol 2E5 fighter. And on the, I think it was the 17th of October, 1916, Lieutenant uh, Wilford Tempest, what a great name. He took off and it took him one hour to get to the same height as the Zeppelin. But for the very first time, he was carrying some um, new ammunition, some experimentary ammunition called the incendiary round. He closed in on the Zeppelin. He could see it in his gun sights. He also saw the German crew in the gondola below uh, making rather rude two-fingered gestures at him. He opened fire and saw the tracer leave the, um, the B-25 and hit the centre of the Zeppelin, which erupted in a huge orange cloud because it was actually inflating the gas. He was quite saddened to see the whole crew jump to their deaths over Potter's Bar. And he landed, of course, uh, a good 30 minutes later and was awarded the Victoria Cross. He, of course, had stopped the Zeppelin threat. In Potter's Bar that night was a gentleman of the name of um, Thomas Lister Parker. And uh, he saw the Zeppelin come down. Of course, there's lots of people in the fields around watching it come down. And um, the following morning, just as it was getting light, he took one of the spars, quite a long spar, uh, a, good, um, a good five feet in length, and brought it back to Bruzham Hall. And just looking at that item, it's a great story in itself. But there's so many other items there, Craig. We'll be here till midnight just talking about them. <laughs> You've also written a book, haven't you, as well, Simon, called uh, Ghostly Tales of the Unexpected. It's on Amazon. Um, could you tell us uh, maybe one or two stories out of that? Yeah, uh, what I did, Craig, when I, when I wrote the book, um, I thought I'd use some local stories that... Um, have all happened, but I also thought I'd use my imagination. And some of the stories um, uh, are pure fiction from my own imagination. Uh, but uh, I think that they'd make marvellous films. There's no two ways about it, really. They really, really would. Some, of course, are based on fact. And uh, one story I would like to bring to your attention is the village of Worley. Okay. Uh, not too far from where we both are now, actually. Absolutely. And there's this gorgeous, gorgeous old inn there which is called the Swan Hotel. And as you walk to the Swan Hotel, you can look up above the door and there you'll see the word 1781. Uh, absolutely marvellous, marvellous building. 
Um, it would have been quite isolated in 1781. There wouldn't have been many houses around it. It was basically a coaching inn. And there's this rather beautiful story. Um, the mid-19th century, a chap called John T. Martindale. And John T. Uh, was a textile trader. He would go to Liverpool, he would buy cotton, and he would then sell it to the textile barons of Lancashire and Yorkshire. Now, Worley, of course, is very, very much on the crossroads between Lancashire and Yorkshire. And his coach arrived in a bitterly, bitterly cold day way back in 1874. It was so cold inside that coach, his coach had nearly frozen to his body. He rushed inside the Swan Hotel and felt the rays of heat from the fireplace and met the landlord, a chap called John Teasdale. And Teasdale said, hey, John T, you're looking a bit jaded, lad. What's the problem? Well, I'm a bit worried about my wife. She's expecting our first child. And I told her I'd be by her side when she gives birth. Oh, don't worry, John T. If you nip upstairs, you'll find the textile barons. They're just having lunch. They'll sign your, um, all your documents and you can sell your cotton and you'll be on your way. Don't worry. He rushed upstairs to the dining room, which is on the top floor there, met the textile barons who were all having lunch. And with his clipboard, they all took orders. He then rushed downstairs again and uh, waited for the coach, which was around the back of the building, at the stable block, he began to pace the floor, wondering about his wife. It became slightly dark outside. Dusk was coming pretty quickly. And as he looked out of the frosty windows, he saw outside the Swan Hotel six horses and a coach. And on the side of the coach, he made out the words, Lancaster, Manchester. That's my coach. Left at great speed and climbed on board. Inside, very musty, very, very damp. As his eyes became accustomed to the light, he realised there were other people in there with him that gave the impression of being females. One lady sitting next to him with her head bowed down, Victorian bonnet covering her face. In front of him, uh, another female with a baby wrapped in a blanket, also with a Victorian bonnet covering her face. He tried to get a conversation going, but to no avail. It was like talking to two statues, really. The coach jutted forward. He made a request. Excuse me, ladies, would you mind if I just open the window, please? It's not very nice in here. No answer. The coach jutted forward towards the River Calder. He made another request. Would you mind if you just opened the window, please? No answer. In a fit of rage, he stood up, reached the window, uh, the leather strap to pull the window down. As he did do, the whole window casing was rotten. And came away in his hand, he then heard a scream. He turned to the right, and the lady sitting next to him had raised her face, and where there should have been a face was a hollow, dark cavity. Jaunty screamed in terror, fell out of the coach and banged his head, was knocked unconscious. He came round uh, five, ten minutes later in a swirling, swirling blizzard. He then walked back to the Swan Hotel, and as he went up the steps, Teasel said, Hey, Jaunty, where you been, man? Let me dress that head wound. Well, I got in a coach, Swan had no face. Jaunty, calm down, calm down. Your coach is still around the back of the building. Your horse is still being fed and watered, and if you look outside, the road is so thick with snow that any coach that arrived here or left here would have definitely made an imprint. Jaunty was convinced that that was the coach he got into. He did some research and found that in 1871, the Lancaster Manchester had left Worley to go to Preston. To get to Preston, it had to go through the village of Chipping and a place called Geoffrey Hill, which is a very wide exposed area. A gust of wind caught the Lancaster Manchester and blew it down the ravine, killing an elderly woman, a young woman and her baby, and six horses and a driver. Jaunty was convinced that was a coach 
he got into. That is an amazing story. Absolutely amazing. You do a lot of um, tours of Clitheroe as well, don't you, Simon? Well, I started the Clitheroe Ghost Murder and Mystery Tour uh, way back in 1996. Um, at that period of time, Craig, I worked for Ribble Valley Borough Council's Grounds Maintenance Department. Um, one should never, ever complain about being employed, but the wages were very, very poor. Um, I'd just got married. Uh, my wife had two children to a previous marriage. I had my own son. And things were very, very tough financially, actually. Uh, now, I had this idea of starting the Clitheroe Ghost Murder and Mystery Walk, uh, which really, in many ways, helped me terrifically financially. It really did, Craig. Mm. Uh, I went to the local library and I found a book called Clitheroe, A Thousand Years by the late Arthur Langshaw. Okay. Arthur Langshaw was the first headmaster of Ribblesdale School. He was also a borough councillor and mayor. And his book, uh, Clitheroe, A Thousand Years, gave me the inspiration for the guided tours. I read that, but I also met six local people and got their stories. And I thought what I'd do is I would amalgamate... Uh, Langshaw's book with those six stories by having some historical facts and then bringing these people in. Um, the story you're going to hear, uh, Craig, is from the Clitheroe Ghost Walk. Uh, it's one of my favourites and it's one that I never ever get tired of talking about really. I didn't need help and I met six local people, one of them being a chap called Billy Lakin. Uh, Billy came from um, Clitheroe. Uh, his story was absolutely beautiful really. He came to my house, sat down, we had a cup of coffee, he reached into his pocket and produced a photograph. And that photograph was of St Mary's Parish Church Centre in Clitheroe, the old Territorial Army Hall. Standing outside were some 57 young men. Um, the photograph was taken and these young men were members of the Clitheroe Territorial Army. In September 1939, Great Britain and the Commonwealth declared war on Nazi Germany. And Bill said we were then sent straight down to the south coast, where we made our way to France to a place called the Maginot Line. Spent three months in the Maginot Line with nothing to do, uh, apart from walk up and down it. Uh, we did come across German troops, and they would wave at us, we'd wave back. Um, we also bartered players' cigarettes with German cigarettes, British bully beef with German stew. It was called the Phony War. No one seemed to want to start it. However... On the 10th of May 1940, the Germans decided to create what we now call Blitzkrieg, Lightning War. The French had told Bill and his mates that don't worry, the Maginot Line will never fall. Of course, they were quite right. The Germans thought, let's not attack the Maginot Line, let's go around the back of it. And that's what they did do. Bill's commanding officer said, right, boys, leave all your equipment. We're going to Dunkirk. We're not, we, there's no transport, boys. We're going to run there. It took them. Um, something in the region of 62 hours, constantly uh, on the run. They left their great coats behind, they left their ammunition behind, they left equipment behind. And when Bill got to Dunkirk, he said the whole, the whole town was on fire. Great pools of smoke coming from the, the, from the harbour itself. He was absolutely shattered and he'd worn the leather off his boots. He arrived at Dunkirk, took his tin helmet off and used it as a shovel to make a small slip trench where he climbed inside the slip trench and fell into a deep sleep. He was rudely awakened by the Lance Corporal of the platoon who said, while she'd been asleep, there's been three air attacks on the beach itself. Their officer assembled the Clitheroe territories and said, right boys, it's our turn to be evacuated. 
The Royal Navy have organised an operation called Dynamo, and they're going to evacuate us from the water's edge this afternoon. My orders to each and every one of you is to get back to the parish church office in Clitheroe, the old TA centre. They made their way down towards the water's edge, and Bill remembered very clearly seeing what's called the Yunkers 87, a, a Stuka, fly right down the length of the beach and open fire. He dived under the water, came to the surface, and it was crimson red with the blood of his mates. He then felt a hand grab his battle dress tunic. It was a sailor who pulled him into a small rowing boat and with other members of the platoon were rowed out to a destroyer. There he received the finest meal he's ever had, which was a corned beef sandwich, a mug of tea and a woodbine cigarette. He got to Dover and couldn't find any of his mates. Uh, an officer then came and said, look, boys, we know where you've come from. You don't need a ticket. Just get back to your battalion headquarters. Bill remember getting a train from Dover to London, London to Preston and Preston to his beloved town of Clitheroe. To get to Clitheroe, the train had to go for the village of Worley, where it stopped for just a short while. He looked out of the window and there he could see on the cricket ground a game of cricket taking place. People wearing white flannels and he thought this is absolute heaven compared to where I've just come from. He got to Clitheroe and he could have gone straight home to his mother and father's house on what we call Pimlico Road in the town, but he didn't. His orders were to get back to the parish church office. He limped and he said he did limp because his feet were red raw, uh, really, really full of blisters and terribly painful. He got to the parish church office as he opened that door out of those 57 young men. Only 19 had got back, including himself. They were told there and then to make up the numbers to platoon strength once again, and they had a re recruitment campaign. In those days, if you were 18, you were conscripted. If you were 17, you could join up, but you had to have your mother and father's consent. Now, Bill was 19. He had a young friend who was 17. And this young boy said, oh, Bill, go and see me, mum and dad. Get him to sign this consent form. I want to fight for my country. Bill said this young boy's parents, they said, sorry. He's 17. The war could be over next year anyway. Oh, please, Mum, please. I want to fight for my country. They gave in on one condition. That condition being that Bill would look after him like a brother. And he swore he would do. So the young lad signed up, did his training, and the newly formed Clitheroe platoon was sent to the beautiful Greek island of Crete to make up the garrison with the Australian and New Zealand armed forces. On the 21st of May 1941, the Germans launched a highly disciplined airborne invasion by using what's called Fallschirmjäger, German paratroopers and glider-borne infantry. The fighting on the island was quite ferocious, uh, with many, many German casualties, but also British, Australian and New Zealand as well. Due to superior equipment and total air cover, the Germans took the island. In the fighting, the Clitheroe platoon lost 12 men, one of them being the 17-year-old young lad. Bill was absolutely heartbroken at the death of this young lad and blamed himself entirely. He wrote to this young boy's parents in Clitheroe through the Red Cross from his POW camp in Poland, just saying, please, please forgive me. They wrote back through the Red Cross and said, Bill, we do not personally hold you responsible for the death of our son. But Bill did. He came back to Clitheroe in 1945, repatriated, and this young boy's death seemed to haunt him every single day. However, things are going to change on the 24th of December, 
1968, when he made his way to the parish church office of all buildings to watch the Clitheroe amateur operatic scientist Christmas play. He was the very, very last person to leave the building, stood outside and lit a cigarette. As he smoked that cigarette, he thought of those young lads on the photograph in 1939. He took a deep sigh and extinguished the cigarette, and then he made his way down the little ginnel by the side of the building onto what we call York Street. As he turned, he heard three whispers. Hey, Bill. Hey, Bill. Hey, Billy. He turned round and saw the ghost of the young lad in British Army uniform. The first thing Bill noted was this young boy had not aged a day. He looked exactly as he had on Crete in 1941. He raised his arm. Bill, Bill, don't worry about me, Bill. I'm fine, Bill. I'm fine, Bill. Don't worry about me. With that, Billy's knees gave way. He knelt on those cobblestones and in his own words, he bellowed like a wounded animal. The tears streamed down his cheeks. He almost yelped in pain. As he looked up, the boy turned, smiled and vaporised. Billy slowly got to his feet in a state of shock and turmoil and trauma. He walked home that Christmas Eve past the happy Christmas revellers. The last thing he felt was celebrating anything. He got home and climbed into bed and quite surprisingly had the best night's sleep he'd had in years. The following day, Christmas Day 1968, he was woken by the, the bells of St Mary's, the bells of St Paul's and the bells of St James. He got out of bed feeling a totally different person. He made his way to the bathroom. As he opened the bathroom door, he caught his reflection in the shaving mirror and noted for the first time since 1941, he was actually smiling and felt he'd been truly forgiven for the death of this young boy all those years ago. Billy died a good 20 years ago because I knew him. I went to his funeral. And uh, I then went to the interment at what we call Waddington Road Cemetery. And um, by the grave were two elderly gentlemen. I had a diplomatic word of both of them. And I, I mentioned uh, this young lad and I said, oh, yes, we we're all captured on Crete together. Bill was with that young lad that day and he sent him back to the ammunition truck to hide behind it because it had a metal tailgate which would give some protection. But a German sniper caught him in open ground. And sadly, he lost his life that day. Um, of course, every November, we always buy poppies. And I always think of these two lads whose only crime really was at the wrong time at the wrong place. But only three years ago, my wife and I, we went to Crete for a holiday and I felt I really must go to the Suva Bay Cemetery, the War Graves Cemetery. As I got there, I met a chap from Lancashire, would you believe, who uh, is one of the gardeners there, works at War Graves Commission. He knew every single British, Australian and New Zealand name on all of those graves and took me straight to 17-year-old George Hudson's grave from Clitheroe, Lancashire. A very, very touching story. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that your father had a, a, a paranormal experience. It's one of my most favourite stories, um, really, Craig. Uh, first of all, my dad would never lie about anything. He, he had no need to, really. But um, way back um, in 1960, my dad got a job in the Lake District. He used to work for a firm called Mullards of Blackburn. And uh, he was a personal officer and he got a job with an insurance company in Kendall. So therefore we had to up sticks. I was only five years old, my sister two years old, brother about eight. And he bought this beautiful, beautiful Victorian house 
just outside Kendall. And I remember arriving there in this Pickford's vehicle and look at this lovely, gorgeous limestone building, which was in its own ground. It was isolated to the words 1898 on the side of it. And I fell in love with that house straight away. Um, because my brother, sister and I were quite young, mum and dad, they made our beds up very, very quickly. And by eight o'clock that night, we were all in a deep sleep. However, my mum and dad had no idea but they were both going to experience something very, very ghostly. Because it was a country house, the last job they needed to do was to put any curtains up, Craig, because it was a, a very, very isolated house. And they made their own bed up and dad, mum and dad climbed into bed. And my dad mentioned that this beautiful bright moonlight was coming straight for the window and actually illuminating the bedroom. He turned over and heard the sounds of tiny footsteps and thought it was either me or my sister or brother who was getting a bit frightened of something. But the door slowly opened to the bedroom and in came a liver and white cocker spaniel. He thought, how's that dog got in here? I've shut the doors downstairs. He got out of bed, walked towards the dog that was in the corner of the room to get hold of the collar. But his hand went straight for the collar and the dog he thought, I'll try again. But his hand went straight for the creature. The dog then looked towards the window as if its name was being called. And then it just shimmered and disappeared. At the same time, my mother, who'd been in a very deep sleep at the time, woke up with a jolt. And she said, oh, I've had this strange dream. It was as clear as day, she said. There's a man outside in Victorian clothing with a bowler hat on, top hat, uh, long Victorian frock coat, with a dog leading his hand, pointing up at our bedroom window. My father then just told her what he'd experienced and they put two and two together. Now, they never told me this story or my brother, sister, until we were teenagers. I had 12 very, very happy years in that house. Very, very happy years and grew to love it. Still do. Uh, went to the local primary school, the local secondary modern school and had many happy days there. Now, in 1973, my father sold the house, which broke my heart. And I will never forget, Craig, leaving that house and feeling deeply, deeply upset because it's where my childhood memories were. Happy Christmas, etc. Now, this is where the story gets spooky again. And I swear to you, it's a very, very true story. Very, very true. Um, I often thought about the house uh, and still do. But just four years ago, my wife and I, for the very, very first time, went on a P&O Mediterranean cruise. I'd never done, done a cruise before, but I've got to say, thoroughly enjoyed it, visiting Gibraltar and Cadiz, all these areas. And they have what's called black tie events. Um, went down to the restaurant and sat down at the table with my wife there. And about two tables away, there was a very, very attractive young lady from the village of Chapman called Louise. And she kept smiling. I didn't know her. She came across and said, it's Simon, isn't it? I said, well, that's right. That's right, yeah. I said, Simon, I am the excursions manager here on the Oceana. That's the name of the ship. Um, I've been in your tours. I quite like them. And uh, have you ever thought about perhaps doing a PowerPoint show on one of the ships with um, your stories, etc.? I said, well, Louise, would people really like ghosts, murders, mysteries, bloodshed and horror? Oh, I don't know, she said, I may do. 
I'll give you an address, an email address. I got back to England and I sent off um, CV, etc., to um, P&O. And much to my surprise, Craig, within four days, they came back to me and they said, we'd like to audition you. You can go down to Sussex or Cumbria. Now, of course, Cumbria is up the road, isn't it, really? Yes. yes. Um, they mentioned that um, you'll meet a lady called Maureen. Uh, just take a laptop and your stories, of course, and she will audition you. I telephoned this lady, Maureen, um, and she said, son, my house is rather hard to get to, actually. It's in South Cumbria. I mentioned that I knew the area quite well. She said, oh, no, it's, my place is hard to find. I'll give you a sat-nav code. That way you'll find it straight away. So uh, I left my home in Clitheroe, and I put the sat-nav code in, found myself driving over the beautiful trough of Boland, down into the city of Lancaster, and then right up towards Millthorpe, and I used to go to school in Milford. I said, this is beautiful. And then for the little village of Hevisham, where I went to the primary school there. And then, oh, what's called Hevisham Head, this huge limestone outcrop with a, a beautiful forest on the top of it. Over Hevisham Head, right to the very, very bottom, and up a very familiar driveway, Craig, back to that house. Maureen, the cruise director, had bought the house. When I arrived there, as you can imagine, I was in a state of shock. I really was. Uh, I was. I was spellbound. Yeah. Um, yes. Maureen came up from the front door there and said, "Right, Simon, we, we've got lots of work to get through. You look a bit jaded. What's the problem?" Well, Maureen, I used to live here. No, no, she said, no, no. I'm not having that. I said honestly, I've got pictures on my laptop. I showed them, and confirmed it. She said, "Right, Simon, let's have a cup of tea." Um. I sat on the settee and looked at the ceiling and saw the familiar doorknobs, the familiar um, lattice work on the ceiling, etc., and the mosaic on the on the tiled floor, which is still there. Uh, she then came back with a tray of tea and some biscuits, and I told her about my father's ghostly experience with this liver and white cocker spaniel. Well, the tray fell through her fingers and smashed on the floor with the teacup and the, and the milk, etc., her eyes widened. She said, Simon, my brother's from London. Every Christmas he spends Christmas with me and my husband. The very, very first Christmas he would have had what she called your mum and dad's room upstairs. In the early hours of the morning, the door opened and in came a liver and white cocker spaniel. I looked at the senior and said, well, thank you, dad. My dad died a good 30 years ago. But um, it just confirmed his story. Uh, it's a beautiful story, but I can assure you that it's so true, Craig. It really is. In fact, if you do meet Louise, she lives in Clitheroe. <laughs> she'll confirm that story with you. You mentioned murders in Clitheroe. Well, by far the most famous murder uh, that took place in the area took place in a village called Bashaw Leaves, which is just outside Clitheroe, really. Um, way back in 1974, Craig, half the Ribble Valley belonged to the West Riding of Yorkshire until some bright boffin changed all the county boundaries. And um, the River Ribble was indeed the main border, if you will. And um, just across the at Eddisford is a lovely old inn called the Eddisford Bridge, and that's where our story starts. March the 18th, 1934, local farmer called Jim Dawson. Jim was 47 years old, very well liked, and had no known enemies. 
Um, he made his way from Bashaw Eaves to the Edison Bridge that night. According to the landlord, John Barnes, he had a couple of pints of ale, followed by a glass of gin, and then walked home. On the journey home, um, the car headlamps of a car came around the corner and illuminated a figure. Some 300 yards in front of him, the car went past and danced the center of the lane once again. Jim carried on walking. He was 800 yards from the back door of the kitchen of the farm where he lived when he heard a metallic sound and felt a whack like a thump to the shoulder and thought, he's chucked a stone at me. He got back to his farm. He enjoyed a meal, we understand. He then went to bed. And in the early hours of the morning, he yelped in pain. Uh, his two sisters came rushing into the bedroom, removed the, his pyjama jacket and found that he had indeed had a wound under his left arm. Um, the local doctor, Dr. Cooper from Clitheroe, arrived and looked at the wound and said, Mr. Dawson, I could be wrong, but I think you've been shot. He was sent to the uh, to Blackburn, to a clinic in Blackburn on Preston New Road, where they took an X-ray and found he had indeed been shot, but not by a conventional bullet, but most unusual thing, the shape and size of a bird's egg that was deeply embedded between two ribs. For some strange reason, Craig, we don't know why, but Jim refused surgery. Uh, we understand he'd served through World War I. We understand he'd seen lads die having bullets taken out of them. And uh, he refused surgery. He came back uh, to his beloved um, Bachelors and uh, was interviewed by two officers from the West Riding Police Force, Inspector Elliot, Inspector Blake. And they asked him about the person he'd seen in the car, in the car headlamps, but he could not give them any description. Uh, what Blake and Elliot did find is the locals seemed to clam up no one seemed to want to talk about this attack. It's almost as if the locals knew, but weren't prepared to talk about it. Um, I do know that uh, the West Riding Police Force did in fact employ or get some help off um, Jack Churchill, who was indeed a ballistics expert, and he had indeed worked for Scotland Yard. And he said that the bullet was homemade, uh, placed in the lathe, rotated at speed to make it more sharper and aerodynamic and fired from some form of strange weapon, possibly a crossbow or indeed an air weapon of some kind. But the murder weapon has never, ever been found. And the murderer has never, ever been brought to justice. Uh, the village is known simply as the village that refused to talk. It is an intriguing story. It really mm. is. Whereabouts can we find you on, on the internet? Do you have a, a web page? Uh, I do indeed, Craig. I've got a, a website called www.tophattours.co.uk. But I've been unemployed for the last year. Um, we can't do tours in any of those halls. Um, I do meet coaches that come into the Ribble Valley from all over the area. And, uh, of course, they will come on um, special tours with me. Um, some are heritage, some are ghostly. Uh, one tour I do like doing is what's called Ribble Valley Haunted Inns, where I take them to the Chipping to Slayburn to Worley, the Swan Royal Hotel in Clitheroe, and the De Lacey Arms in, in Worley. And uh, we'll have a pint in each pub and we'll have a good <laughs> chat. We have a good chat as well about the about the history and the characters behind it, really. Uh, but I'm a bit like you actually, Craig, right now. Um I'm working on another book, but I would like to produce an audio book because my spelling is abysmal. And I found with the first book I did, uh, it did take quite a long time to write it because you are writing a book, but it's so much easier just talking into a microphone. But um, I'm hoping to get, I've got quite a few stories now in zip files and I'd like to get them those all uploaded 
on to, shall we say, an Amazon audiobook. That's my next um, mission, really, Craig. Good luck with that. And and I'd like to have you back at some stage in the, in the future Thank you. to talk about uh, the Haunted Inns, because that is a, that's obviously a fascinating subject. And uh, I think there's nothing better than going into a, a Haunted Inn and having a couple of pints and a good old, a good old chinwag, as we say in Lancashire oh, yes. about it. So yeah. so, yeah, that's fantastic. Simon, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope the listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have. I'm sure they will have done check out my website which is uh, craigbryant.co.uk and there's more information on there about um, about my book as well which is the shadow man of Accrington. paranormal pendle podcast will return but remember keep watching the shadows and thank you bye for now